Coming to this pulpit is always a very humbling responsibility. I seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit and uh, pray that what I have to say will be guided by that Spirit and pray that it may abundantly rest upon all of us so that you might understand also by that special Spirit. I wish to speak this morning to all, but especially to those who feel that they have had more trials, sorrows, pricks, and thorns than they can bear, and in their adversity are almost drowned in the waters of bitterness. My message is intended as one of hope, strength, and deliverance. I speak of the refiner's fire. Some years ago, President David O. McKay told from this pulpit of the experience of some of those in the Martin Handcart Company. Many of these early converts had emigrated from Europe and were too poor to buy oxen or horses in a wagon and were forced by their poverty to pull handcarts containing all of their belongings across the plains by their own brute strength. President McKay relates an occurrence which took place some years after the heroic exodus. A teacher conducting a class said it was unwise ever to attempt even to permit them of the handcart, Martin Handcart Company to come across the plains under such conditions. Some sharp criticism of the church leaders was being indulged in for permitting any company of converts to venture across the plains with no more supplies or protection than a handcart caravan afforded. An old man in the corner sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who ever heard him will ever forget. His face was white with emotion, yet he spoke calmly, deliberately, but with great earnestness and sincerity. In substance, he said, I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts mean nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes. But I was in that company, and my wife was in it, and Sister Nellie Unthank, of whom you have cited, was there too. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Not one of that company ever apostatized or left the church, because every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. I have pulled my handcart when it was, I was so weak and weary from illness and lack of food that I could hardly put one foot ahead of the other. I have looked ahead and seen a patch of sand or a hill slope, and I have said, I can only go that far, and there I must give up, for I cannot pull the load through it. He continues, I have gone on to that sand, and when I reached it, the cart began pushing me. I have looked back many times to see who was pushing my cart but my eyes saw no one. I knew that the angels of God were there. Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart company? No, neither then nor any minute of my life since. The price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay, and I am thankful that I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company. Here, then, is a great truth. In the pain, the agony, and the heroic endeavors of life, we pass through a refiner's fire, and the insignificant and the unimportant in our lives can melt away like dross and make our faith bright, intact, and strong. In this way, the divine image can be mirrored from the soul. It is part of the purging toll exacted of some to become acquainted with God. In the agonies of life, we seem to listen better to the faintly godly whisperings of the divine shepherd. Into every life there comes the painful, despairing days of adversity and buffeting, 
There seems to be a full measure of anguish, sorrow, and often heartbreak for everyone, including those who earnestly seek to to do right and be faithful. The thorns that prick, that stick in the flesh, that hurt, often change lives which seem robbed of significance and hope. This change comes about through a refining process which often seems cruel and hard. In this way, the soul can become like soft clay in the hands of the Master in building lives of faith, usefulness, beauty, and strength. For some, the refiner's fire causes a loss of faith and belief in God, but those with eternal perspective understand that such refining is part of the perfection process. In our extremities, it is possible to be born again, born anew, renewed in heart and spirit. We no longer ride with the flow of the crowd, but instead enjoy the promise of Isaiah to be renewed in our strength and mount up with wings as eagle. In the proving of one's faith goes before the witnessing, for Moroni testifies Ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. This trial of faith can become a priceless experience. States Peter that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Trials and adversity can be preparatory to becoming born anew, A rebirth out of spiritual adversity causes us to become new creatures. From Mosiah we learn that all mankind must be born again, born of God, changed, redeemed, and uplifted to become the sons and daughters of God. President Marion G. Romney, speaking for the Lord, has stated of this marvelous power, The effect upon each person's life is likewise similar. No person whose soul is illuminated by the burning spirit of God can in this world of sin and dense darkness remain passive. He is driven by an irresistible urge to fit himself to be an active agent of God in furthering righteousness and in freeing the lives and minds of men from the bondage of sin. The feelings of being reborn were expressed by Parley Pratt as follows. If I had to set to turn the world over, to dig down a mountain, to go to the ends of the earth, or traverse the deserts of Arabia, it would have been easier than to have undertaken to rest while the priesthood was upon me. I have received the holy anointing, and I can never rest till the last enemy is conquered, death destroyed, and truth reigns triumphant. Unfortunately, some of our greatest tribulations are the result of our own foolishness and weakness, and occur because of our own carelessness of transgression. Central to these problems is a great need to get back on the right track and, if necessary, engage in each of the steps for full and complete repentance. Through this great principle, many things can be made fully right and all things better. We can go to others for help. To whom can we go? Elder Orson F. Whitney asked and answered this question. To whom do we look in the days of grief and disaster for help and consolation? They are the men and the women who have suffered, and out of their experience and suffering they bring forth the riches of their sympathy and condolences as a blessing to those now in need. Could they do this if they had not suffered themselves? Is not this God's purpose in causing his children to suffer? He wants them to become more like himself. God has suffered more than any man did or ever will, and is therefore the great source of sympathy and consolation. Isaiah, before his birth, referred to the Savior as a man of sorrows. Speaking in the Doctrine and Covenants of himself, the Savior said, Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore? and to suffer both body and spirit that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Some are prone to feel that their afflictions are punishment. Roy Doxey states, The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that it is a false idea to believe that the saints will escape all the judgments, disease, pestilence, war, etc. of the last days. 
Consequently, it is an unhallowed principle to say that these adversities are due to transgression. President Joseph S. Smith taught that it is a feeble thought to believe that the illness and affliction that come to us are attributable either to the mercy or the displeasure of God. Paul understood this perfectly when he referred when referred to the Savior, he said, Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey. For some, the suffering is extraordinary. Stillman Pond was a member of the Second Quorum of Seventies in Nauvoo. He was an early convert to the Church, having come from Hubbardston, Massachusetts. Like others, he and his wife, Maria, and children were harassed and driven out of Nauvoo. In September 1846, they became part of the Great Western Migration. The early winter that year brought extreme hardships, including malaria, cholera, and consumption. The family was visited by all three of these diseases. Maria contracted consumption, and all of the children were stricken with malaria. Three of the children died while moving through the early snows. Stillman buried them on the plains. Maria's condition worsened because of the grief, pain, and fever of malaria. She could no longer walk. Weakened and sickly, she gave birth to twins. They were named Joseph and Hiram, and both died within a few days. The Stillman Pond family arrived at winter quarters, and like many other families, they suffered bitterly while living in a tent. The death of the five children across the plains to winter quarters was but a beginning. The Journal of Horace Kay and Helen Moore Whitney verifies the following regarding four more of the children of Stillman Pond who perished. On Wednesday, the 2nd of December, 1846, Laura Jane Pond, aged 14 years, died of chills and fever. Two days later, on Friday, the 4th of December, 1846, Harriet M. Pond, aged 11 years, died with the chills. Three days later, Monday, the 7th of December, 1846, Abigail A. Pond, aged 18 years, died with the chills. Just five weeks later, Friday the 15th of January, 1847, Lyman Pond, aged six years, died with the chills and the fever. Four months later, on the 17th of May, 1847, his wife, Maria Davis Stillman, also died. Crossing the plains, Stillman Pond lost nine children and a wife. He became an outstanding colonizer in Utah and became the senior president of the 35th Quorum of the Seventy. Having lost these nine children and his wife crossing the plains, Stillman Pond did not lose his faith. He did not quit. He went forward. He paid a price, as have many others before and since, to become acquainted with God. The Divine Shepherd has a message of hope, strength, and deliverance for all. If there were no night, we would not appreciate the day, nor could we see the stars and the vastness of the heavens. We must partake of the bitter with the sweet. There is a divine purpose in the adversities we encounter every day. They prepare, they purge, they purify, and thus they bless. When we pluck the roses, we find often we cannot avoid the thorns which spring from the same stem. Out of the refiner's fire can come a glorious deliverance. It can be a noble and a lasting rebirth. The price to become acquainted with God will have been paid. There can come a sacred peace. There will be a reawakening of dormant inner resources. A comfortable cloak of righteousness will be drawn around us to protect us and to keep us warm spiritually. Self-pity will vanish as our blessings are counted. I now wish to conclude by testifying concerning Jesus as the Christ and the Divine Redeemer. He lives. His are the sweet words of eternal life. He is the Son of the living God. This is his holy work and glory. This is his Church. It is true. I am most grateful for this sacred knowledge. It is my cherished privilege and duty to so testify, which I humbly do in the hallowed name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we conclude this morning of inspiration and basking in the beauty of that number of the Tabernacle Choir, I should like to take you for a moment back to that most dreadful night in and about Jerusalem when the Last Supper was concluded. Jesus and his disciples left the city and went over to the Mount of Olives. Knowing that his terrible ordeal was at hand, he spoke with those he loved, and he said to them, All ye shall be offended, that is, shall fall away because of me this night. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. There followed shortly thereafter the terrible agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the betrayal. As the procession moved to the court of Caiaphas, Peter followed under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. While the mockery of that trial was going on and Jesus' accusers spit on him and buffeted him and smote him with the palms of their hands, a damsel, seeing Peter, said, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said unto Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. What pathos there is in those words. Peter, affirming his loyalty, his determination, his resolution, said that he would never deny. But the fear of men came upon him, and the weakness of his flesh overtook him. And under the pressure of accusation, his resolution crumbled. Then, recognizing his wrong and his weakness, he went out and wept. As I have read this account, my heart goes out to Peter. So many of us are so much like him. We pledge our loyalty. We affirm our determination to be of good courage. We declare sometimes, even publicly, that come what may, we will do the right thing, that we will stand for the right cause, that we will be true to ourselves and to others. Then the pressures begin to build. Sometimes these are social pressures. Sometimes they are personal appetites. Sometimes they are false ambitions. There is a weakening of the will. There is a softening of discipline. There is capitulation. And then there is remorse, self-accusation, and bitter tears of regret. One of the great tragedies we witnessed almost daily is the tragedy of men of high aim and low achievement. Their motives are noble. Their proclaimed ambition is praiseworthy. Their capacity is great, but their discipline is weak. They succumb to indolence. Appetite robs them of will. I think of such a man I once knew, not a member of the Church. He was a graduate of a great university. His potential was unlimited. As a young man with an excellent education and a tremendous opportunity, 
he dreamed of the stars and moved in their direction. In the company which employed him in those early years, he was promoted from one responsibility to another, each with improved opportunity over the last. Before many years had passed, he was in the top echelon of his company. But those promotions brought him into the cocktail circuit, and he could not handle it, as so many others cannot. He became an alcoholic, the victim of an appetite he could not control. He sought help, but was too proud to discipline himself in the regimen imposed upon him by those who tried to assist him. He went down like a falling star, tragically burning out and disappearing in the night. I made inquiry of one friend after another and finally learned the truth of his tragic end. He who had begun with such high aim and impressive talent had died on Skid Row in one of our large cities. Like Peter of old, he had felt certain of his strength and of his capacity to live up to his potential. But he had denied that capacity, and I am confident that as the shadows of his failure closed around him again like Peter, he must have gone out and wept bitterly. I think of another. I knew him well. He joined the church when long ago I was a missionary in the British Isles. He had a smoking habit. He prayed for strength in that springtime of his church membership, and the Lord answered his prayer and gave him power to overcome his habit. He looked to God and lived with a joy he never had previously known. But then something happened. Family and social pressures were brought against him. He lowered his vision and gave way to his appetite. The smell of burning tobacco seduced him. I saw him some years later. We talked together of the old and better days he had known, and he, like Peter, wept bitterly. He blamed this and he blamed that. And as he did so, I was inclined to replete the words of Cassius. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. And so I might continue telling you of those who begin with noble objectives but then slow down, or of those who are strong starters and weak finishers. So many in the game of life get to first base or second or even third, but then fail to score. They are inclined to live unto themselves, denying their generous instincts, grasping for possessions, and in their self-centered, uninspired living, sharing neither talent nor faith with others. Of them the Lord has said, And this shall be your lamentation in the day of visitation and of judgment and of indignation. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and my soul is not saved. But more particularly, I wish to say a word concerning those who, like Peter, profess, profess love for the Lord and his work, and then, either with voice or by silence, deny him. I recall so well a young man of great faith and devotion. He was my friend and my mentor during a sensitive period of my life. The manner of his living and the enthusiasm of his service were evidence of his love for the Lord and for the work of the Church. But he was slowly led away by the flattery of associates who saw in him the means of their own advancement in the affairs in which they were engaged together. Rather than lead them in the direction of his own faith and behavior, he slowly succumbed to their enticings in the opposite direction. He never spoke in defiance of the faith he had lived by. That was not necessary. His altered manner was testimony enough of his having forsaken it. The years passed, and then I met him again. He spoke as one disillusioned. With lowered voice and lowered eyes, he told of his drifting when he cut himself loose from the anchor of his once-treasured faith. Then, concluding his narrative, 
Like Peter, he wept. The other day I was speaking with a friend concerning a mutual acquaintance, a man looked upon as highly successful in his vocation. But what of his activity in the church, I asked. To which my friend responded, he knows in his heart that it is true, but he is afraid of it. He is fearful that if he were to acknowledge his church membership and live its standards, he would be cut off from the social circle in which he moves. I reflected, like Peter who denied his own sure knowledge, the day will come, though not possibly until old age, when in hours of quiet reflection this man will know that he traded his birthright for a mess of pottage, and there will be remorse and sorrow and tears, for he will come to see that he not only denied the Lord in his own life, but also in effect denied him before his children who have grown up without a faith to cling to. The Lord himself said, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now, in conclusion, may I go back to Peter, who denied and wept, Recognizing his error, repenting of his weakness, he turned about and became a mighty voice in bearing witness of the risen Lord. He, the senior apostle, dedicated the remainder of his life to testifying of the mission, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living Son of the living God. <clears throat> He preached the moving sermon on the day of Pentecost, when the multitude were touched in their hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost. In the authority of the priesthood received from his master, he with John healed the lame man, the miracle that brought on persecution. He fearlessly spoke for his brethren when they were arraigned before the Sanhedrin. His was the vision that led to carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. He suffered chains and prison and a terrible martyr's death as a witness of him who had called him from his nets to become a fisher of men. He remained faithful and true to the great and compelling trust given when the resurrected Lord in his final instructions to the eleven apostles charged them to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And he it was who, with James and John, resurrected beings all, came back to earth in this dispensation to restore the holy priesthood, under which divine authority the Church of Jesus Christ was organized in these latter days, and under which same authority it now functions. These mighty works and many more unmentioned were done by Peter, who once had denied and sorrowed, and then rose above that remorse to carry forward the work of the Savior following his ascension and to participate in the restoration of that work in this dispensation. Now, if there be any within the sound of my voice today who by word or act has denied the faith, I pray that you may draw comfort and resolution from the example of Peter, who, though he had walked daily with Jesus, in an hour of extremity denied both the Lord and the testimony which he carried in his own heart. But he rose above this and became a mighty defender and a powerful advocate. So, too, there is a way for you to turn about and add your strength and faith to the strength and faith of others in building the kingdom of God. There sits in this hall today a man who grew up with love for the Church. Then he became involved in his business career. Becoming obsessed with ambition, 
he began in effect to deny the faith. The manner of his living became almost a repudiation of his loyalty. Then, fortunately, before he had gone too far, he heard the whisperings of the still, small voice. There came a saving sense of remorse. He turned around, and today he stands as the president of a great stake of Zion, while also serving as a senior officer in one of the leading industrial corporations of the nation and of the world. My beloved brethren and sisters, who may also have drifted, the Church needs you, and you need the Church. You will find many ears that will listen with understanding. There will be many hands to help you find your way back. There will be hearts to warm your own. There will be tears not of bitterness, but of rejoicing. May the Lord touch you by the power of his Spirit. May he strengthen your resolution. May your joy be full and your peace sweet and satisfying as you return to that which you know in your hearts is true. I humbly pray as I leave my witness and testimony of him in whose name we serve, even the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I must admit that my heart beat a little faster with spiritual emotion as the choir was singing, The Morning Breaks, The Shadows Flee, one of the great stirring hymns of the Church. You'll recall that Parley P. Pratt, one of the twelve, sent to Great Britain by the Prophet Joseph Smith to assist in opening the work abroad, composed those words. They were to help explain the true gospel message to the world. He penned, The morning breaks, the shadows flee. Lo, Zion's standard is unfurled, the dawning of a brighter day. The morning light of the gospel is spreading over the world. The shadows of darkness are disappearing. The majesty of his work is bursting forth. Tens of thousands are accepting the gospel of salvation. A few months ago, we drove along the coast of Chile with President and Sister Lester Haymore, then mission president. As we visited cities and drove from village to village, we saw the fruits of our missionary proselyting efforts. We met with many new members, and we were deeply impressed with their faith and humble desire to learn more about the gospel they have accepted. As we continued the journey, our concern centered on ways we could help prevent this growing number of new members from feeling like strangers or foreigners, but to become fellow citizens with the saints. How can we help in strengthening their faith so that they can hold on to the iron rod and continue to grow in knowledge? We reflected on the many priesthood, relief society, and Sunday school classes where husbands and wives trained in the gospel many with unusual talents not now being fully used. Some stakes are crowded with mature couples fully prepared to accept a mission call who could not only enthusiastically help in spreading the gospel, but strengthen new members in areas of the world where we are growing so rapidly. The thousands of newly baptized members now in in the church, in a church with somewhat strange, unfamiliar ways, could be encouraged and trained by someone who today is sitting comfortably at home. We thought if we could only transplant hundreds of our faithful, well-prepared couples out into one of the greatest chapters of their lives. Amulek taught, 
And he shall come into the world to redeem his people. Must we not encourage and hold together his people and help prepare them for his coming? Some generally think of full-time missionary service only for younger, unmarried men and women. However, a new social pattern is emerging. The number of men and women retiring from from active employment or professions is continually increasing. At what President Kimball or Brother LeGrand Richards would consider a very early age. (laughs) Recently in the mail was a query from friends in California, now retiring from school teaching, who indicated a desire to return to Utah and ask, what can we do for the church when we return? My answer was, don't come to Utah. Your church experience is needed out in the world. Brush up on your Norwegian that you learned as a missionary years ago. I understand they soon will be on their way. He is thrilled with this opportunity to serve a second mission. This time he will have an added blessing of keeping the same companion for his entire mission. (laughs) Many couples are prepared and waiting for the bishop to extend a mission call. Perhaps the the bishop, busy with other duties, has overlooked them. Couples who have a desire to serve the Lord need not wait for the bishop, but should knock on his door and say, We feel we are ready to go. Recently in Mexico, I had the opportunity of meeting a wonderful, mature missionary couple, brother and sister John Fossum, who commented, Our greatest need is trained leadership. Married couples with years of experience in church work, they could literally work miracles. They said, We have 22 scattered branches without as yet an organization to train the branch leaders. We're so new and growing so rapidly, and leaders with experience are not available. The Fossums continued, Many blessings have come to us as a result of our mission, blessings we always receive from the Lord whenever we serve without restraint. They added, People shrivel up and die in beds and rocking chairs. We didn't want that kind of retirement. We knew we wanted to go on a mission and we received a call. Some couples, they continued, imagine they can't live without their families close by, and some fear for their own physical well-being. And then they said it was reassuring when our stake president set us apart, and he promised us that the Lord would look after our family and that we would have good health to the end of our mission. At our age, it is difficult, they continued, to live up to missionary schedules. But we have found it's possible, and it has its rewards. And then Brother Fossum said, Fifty years ago, I served a mission in Hawaii, in Hawaii and learned to speak Hawaiian. It was difficult then. And it was difficult at our age to go through the missionary training center and learn Spanish. But we did it, and it has been a great learning experience. The spiritual treasures they said alone are worth the effort. Sister Fossum said, It's really hard on grandmas to be away from 26 grandchildren, but I'm coming through with flying colors, sometimes at half-mast, but they're flying. (laughs) This dedicated couple concluded, A mission for those of mature years is a rich, rewarding experience. It's for those who want to live out their retirement and not just exist. Now we need more, many more couples like the Fossums who are willing, wondering, and asking, What can I do for the Lord? Willing to use part of their golden years in this vital service. In the early days of the church, The Lord's work urgently required sacrifice and the best efforts of the saints. A company of brethren commanded to leave their families and go to Missouri in 1831 were admonished, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, 
For ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and, the will, and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. Now to you, don't wait until your retirement dinner and the traditional gold watch to make plans, but start now. Prepare for what might be the reward, most rewarding experience of your life. Why not begin now to expand your horizons? Plan to increase your knowledge. Why not learn another language? You could start with Spanish or German. President Kimball is suggesting Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> My wife, Ruby, after a 50-year lapse, is back at the university taking Spanish 101. Hard work? Of course. Long hours of study to keep up? Many. Who does the cooking? Sometimes I do. Rewarding? I'm so proud of her when she bears a humble testimony. Our members in Argentina or Mexico can understand. We are witnessing a continuing unfolding of the Lord's work in this, the last dispensation. Millions are waiting and want to improve their lives. President Kimball is asking for more mature couples. They are needed everywhere, particularly experienced members with family ties to other lands. A, spirited, a spiritual rebirth can be yours. As you serve the Lord in total service, prayer will have a deeper dimension. The scriptures will be pondered and more deeply appreciated. The Holy Ghost will become more evident. Your capacity to love will increase. Your families at home will be blessed and they will be proud of your selfless service to the Lord. Moroni, the Book of Mormon, taught of the careful attention given to the newly baptized then. And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer. In many areas of the world, we have converts that need to be remembered with care and love, encouraged and kept in the right way, as Moroni stated. But the couples with the experience who could assist are usually living elsewhere. We need the help of seasoned church members who can provide the training, encouragement, and above all, compassionate concern. To show what can be accomplished with such love and dedication, let me share with you again the Fossums. They said, to visit one of our branches, we got up at 4 a.m. on Sunday to catch an early bus. Sister Fossum started a little music class for the sisters during the priesthood hour. She taught the basics of directing music and discovered a 13-year-old girl with a perfect sense of time, who now leads the singing in sacrament meeting. Now that branch has a chorister. Brother Fossum said, I was invited to attend their branch presidency meeting to show how we do some things. A few months ago, in this same branch, he said, home teaching and visiting teaching were just words in a book. But now nine pairs of home teachers are making their visits, and they soon will have the visiting teaching underway. These are incidental rewards, he said. The great rewards come in the service we give and the love we feel for the humble new members results in a change in their lives for the better. Then we, too, are enriched. We appeal to you this day. You who have been prepared line upon line and precept upon precept,
to go forth out into the world. Put your hand to the plow. Bless new members with your love, your faith, helping them to keep in the right way, teaching them to be watchful under prayer and relying upon Christ, the author of our faith. Did not the Savior teach Peter and through Peter us as he pointed to the nets full of fish on the shore and said, Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter replied, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my lambs. Again the second time, Lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter now aggrieved because the Savior had asked the third time, Lovest thou me? And Peter said, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. To us of his church, isn't the duty clear and forever to feed my sheep, my followers, those who have accepted my gospel, they are mine. Isn't he saying they are dear to me? You are stronger. Your faith is firm. Be a friend to those who are new. Feed my lambs, he is saying to us. May many of us who are fully prepared and needing the blessings put aside the things of the world and become shepherds to the flock and love ourselves out into in his service, to which I testify is true in the humble name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There are only nine stairs, but it seems like Mount McKinley. My brothers and sisters, I am so grateful to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to be among you. And I would like to thank you, all of you members, for all that you've done for me these past two years. I solicit your faith and prayers this morning as I speak with you about the subject of commitment. A short time ago, I attended a very special dinner meeting. It was to honor a friend who had given many years of total commitment to a very special group of people. I watched group after group bring gifts, embrace, and thank him for what he had done for them. As I saw him stand before hundreds gathered that night, I thought, how could anyone so young have done so much in such a short time? And then I reflected on the thousands of selfless acts that he had done for these people his encouragement in the face of almost insurmountable obstacles. He had given his time, home, money, skills, his total commitment to do everything he could do to help them. I tell you, it was like being in a testimony meeting, and I went away thanking the Lord for his life and the fact that one person's commitment can make such a difference. I learned again that night that commitment is doing what everyone can do, but usually doesn't. When one commits himself to like this young man, it is like opening the headgates of a mighty dam, permitting all the power to become available. As I think of commitment, I recall one of the many solemn days of commitment in the life of the Savior. Jesus had just touched the ear of a servant of one of the high priests and healed him. Only more moments before, his ear had been severed by a sword. And then Jesus was taken into the high priest's house, where he was mocked, bound, blindfolded, and spat upon. The next day he was taken again before the council and was again scourged and berated. He might have saved himself. Instead, he stood majestically before his accusers and acknowledged his sonship his kingship, his personal commitment to his Father and to all mankind. 
This ultimately changed the destiny of every living soul. How many hundreds of times, because of fatigue, hunger, pain, or disappointment, he might have disavowed this commitment? The Savior's commitment was a very special one, to be sure. It could only be done by him. But we, too, have commitments to make, commitments to him, to our families, to others. These are essential to our happiness here and our exaltation hereafter. What of commitment? Does it really make a difference? The Lord spoke of this principle to the prophet Joseph Smith, a prophet of God in August of 1831. He said, Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness for the powers in them. Commitment, as I've observed, is to be an example of goodness. It is to be anxiously engaged and do many things of our own free will. It is not by compulsion, but because of our desire to bring to pass much righteousness. Commitment is not confessing, but doing. It is not convenient. It isn't easy. It's never easy. It is example leadership. It is a binding but happy response to duty. It is at once peaceful, yet compelling, for it obligates one to action. It is essential to the good life. It is doing what everyone can do. It is a beautiful principle to observe in action. While I was in the mission field a few years ago, I observed one of the missionaries who always had people to teach and baptize. Wherever he went, he went with such commitment, happiness, and love for others that he was accepted. It was said of him that when he would come back into the area, many of the people would peek through their windows just to get a glimpse of this unusual young man. Though he was not particularly gifted in language skills, he succeeded in bearing a testimony to thousands of people. Again, like my friend, he only did what everybody could, but usually doesn't. Once commitment is understood as a binding principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a committed person is able to call on heavenly powers and healings. Like the waters behind the mighty dam, these powers transform his personal world. An early American prophet counseled us how important our commitment is to the Savior. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down into the gulf of misery and endless woe. Because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, whereupon if men build, they cannot fall. When we commit ourselves to him, we receive the inner peace and security he promised. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. When we are committed to him, we bind him to bless us. For he said, I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. And conversely, when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. A newspaper once received this question from a reader. What would be the most important news the world could receive? And after careful de deliberation, the editor answered, To know that Jesus Christ lives today. This would be the most important news anyone could know. We bear a solemn witness to you that he does live. He restored and directs his church through a prophet of God. The priesthood and principles of a gospel have been restored to bless all who commit them into their lives. We invite all to make a personal commitment this day from the things you've heard to study these doctrines and earnestly ask our Father in heaven if they are true.
As we commit ourselves to the Lord and His principles, we are led to share them with our families. The family is eternal. We may be sealed together forever in a patriarchal order if we are righteous. This knowledge we willingly and anxiously share with the world because of the joy we feel. We affirm that every soul and every life is sacred and important. Every child is a gift and a blessing. The home is an institution of learning and loving to develop the capacities of each of its members to live in accordance with the laws of God. We testify that these laws are eternal and unchanging. A personal commitment to this priority is paramount. Nothing can surpass the inner security of having one's family committed to God. A busy father, businessman, and church leader told me a few years ago that he loved his family so much that he had made this commitment. He would give several nights each week and part of every Saturday to them. They were programmed into his schedule. The gospel helped him to understand the importance of this priority. And then, though fatigue, business, church, or other requirements pressed him every day, he followed this commitment. For him, it was an irrevocable obligation, a looked-for pleasure to be with and nurture his family. He did what every father could and must do, but sometimes doesn't do. Prophets in all ages have counseled families to pray, study, work, and play together, to bind ourselves together in all holiness. It is and ever will be the answer to happiness, peace, and unity in this world. But it takes commitment to do so, to do all we can. Knowing's not enough. It takes a personal commitment to be anxiously engaged, to do everything possible. And may I re-echo a thought expressed by another. Never give up trying to reach a loved one. Never, never, never. The blessings of heaven may be realized after the prayers and personal commitment of the righteous. When one is totally committed to this endeavor, there is a greater inner strength. We not only love more, but we help more. Can any member forget the story told yesterday by Elder Perry about an anxious prophet, Father Alma, who received the blessing of a changed son? One man who had committed himself to do everything he could to share the gospel with others walked out of his office one day and saw a man running down the hall. He learned this man had stapled his finger. He reached into his big pocket and pulled out a tincture of methylate and a band-aid and dressed the wound. And the shocked individual asked in amazement why he did this, and he responded, I'm a Mormon, and Mormons do these things. <laughs> Incidentally, in the trunk of his car, he had six different kinds of auto tire jacks so that as he went down the highway, he could fix any car. <laughs> this man was prepared to help wherever possible. In a state conference, a number of speakers mentioned a certain man, and after the session, the general authority met, met him, and he learned from others that there were over 50 people who were brought into the church, who joined the church because of him. The way he kept his yard, his home, his happiness, his good deeds to his neighbors, all brought him opportunities to tell others how the gospel had blessed his life. These two men had just con committed themselves to do what everyone can do. I know after many interviews that many long to become part of the assembly of the blessed. Many times they cry out in the night for help, not knowing where to turn, how to begin. Their eternal spirits seek help. As social beings, we need each other. The commitment to reach out to them is a binding invitation from the Savior. And when this is done in love, we may redeem them help redeem them at least. It is infinitely more than just confessing Jesus Christ. It is doing what needs to be done. Church leaders and home teachers have special opportunities to help. The object of all their work, meetings, faith, and prayer will be upon to help each individual and family. 
A sister in France who joined the church was approached by her former minister, who asked her how she could possibly have done such a thing. Her response was beautiful and reassuring and shows us how important our collective commitment is to serve others. She said that at least once every month, leaders or members of the church would visit her. They looked after her spiritual and temporal needs. And then she told her minister that since she had been baptized as a baby, the only one from her former church ever to visit her was this day, and that was only to inquire after her membership. A total commitment to anxiously serve the Lord and others is the surest way to overcome the many temptations of the adversary. My brothers and sisters, I want to leave you my witness this day. That commitment, that is, a person committed is someone who makes goodness look attractive. And I leave my testimony about the power and the importance of this principle in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.